0: Hi, everyone. This is John and TJ. Welcome to the last episode of Season 2 of ALN Math Talk. Math Talk is where we answer your questions about online lessons, math learning, and the meaning of math.
1: One last time, I'll ask you to check out our website, alllearnersnetwork.com, for some free resources and amazing math professional development opportunities. Under the Events tab, uh, we're recording this uh, early May, so... Um, All of our summer events in June, July, and August are now live on our events tab.
0: So today we're going to talk with a fellow Vermonter who now lives in Pennsylvania. That's an interesting choice. you'll have to tell us about that. Annie Fetter, welcome. And can you start, Annie, by telling us about your math journey? How did you end up where you are today in the world of mathematics?
2: Gosh, it's the sort of thing where it just falls in your lap, so I've, I've... I ended up in Pennsylvania because I went from uh, Vermont. I went to Swarthmore College, and uh, which might seem like an odd choice, but I'm actually the fourth generation of my family to go to Swarthmore, so it seemed reasonable. And it was small, and I could play three sports, and I didn't really, I don't think, have any idea what I was getting myself into. Um, but I just assumed I would be a math teacher because math was really easy, and I saw what people did. They stood up there and did stuff on the board and then asked kids to do it. And it's like, I can totally do that. And uh, I figured either math teacher or basketball coach. Um, math teacher seemed more like an actual job. And uh, so I did get certified to teach math and got offered a job working on an NSF project um, that developed the first version of the Geometer Sketchpad dynamic software. So this was the <laughs> late 80s. And, uh, and so I was like, yeah, I don't have to look for a job. I'll, I'll do that. I got to work on the first color Macintosh computer, that was my job in the office. And um, and so doing that, uh, we then wrote another grant that started, um, that was like, hey, there's this internet thing that we used, but um, certainly the general public and, and public education weren't using yet. I was like, what if we had like a place where math people could hang out and talk on the internet? And so we got a grant to develop that and that was the beginning of the math forum where i ended up working for almost 28 years so it all just sort of happened uh without me really planning it in a sense so um uh, a career in math education was what i planned but not exactly this career but it worked out great because what did what did you do at math forum so we were saying okay so we think that the math education community all levels should have opportunities to talk to each other. So like researchers and teachers and students. Um, and so we were developing uh, news groups. This is before the World Wide Web. So we were developing news groups and FTP archives and Gopher archives. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that people could talk about things. And we had famous mathematicians. John Conway used to talk to high school kids on our news groups. Right. And he was like, oh, I have some ideas about that thing. And he's never gonna wander into the local high school and chat with, with people. So um, it was really sort of barrier busting in, in many ways. And we ended up doing a lot of professional development for teachers and building a pretty thriving online community for teachers. Um, it was very exciting, very cutting edge and, um, and uh, brought you in touch with lots of different sectors of the education community. So
1: welcome, Annie. It's so good to see and hear you. Uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, a, a connection to our mission at All Learners. We're really focused on teaching math for all learners. So when you, what, what comes to mind when you think about teaching math so that all students can learn?
2: Well, first, this idea that you know, as we are having more conversations about these days, um, everybody can learn math. And, uh, and the idea that, you know, you're either good at math or you're not, or you have a math gene or you don't, um, and the fact that that's all kind of bull, um, it is, you know, I'm trying to help teachers believe and, and have experiences and strategies so that they can elicit mathematical thinking from their kids when they haven't been doing that. So they don't, they don't. They don't know that they weren't brought up in a culture, uh, you know, an educational culture that believed that everyone could do math. So it's it's not like you have to dissuade them. It's like it has to occur to them that that might be a possibility. And so I think giving people things to do where they're like, wait, those kids never talk like that kid has never said anything all year or whatever. That that's I think that's really eye opening for teachers because they they've heard the rumor somewhere like, oh, everyone can do math or whatever, but they don't. They don't believe it and it's not their fault they just there's no reason for them to believe it because they've never been in a situation where that seemed like it was the case uh, yeah. and so giving people ways they can tweak things so that more kids can share their mathematical ideas is sort of my my goal it's it's only mildly subversive
1: yeah and i would say it's even more important right now i just came out of being in the schools all, all this week uh, last last week in connecticut and you know kids are still sitting in rows at individual desks and you know the pandemic really took a toll on the whole idea of, of facilitating discourse in a classroom how do you turn and talk when you're 6 feet apart and right you're trying to keep um, not have kids shout and produce lots of uh, You know, spittle from their mouths. Like, how do you do that? It's really challenging. So, I found uh, most places I'm working feel like their the education as a whole has kind of taken a step back because of the pandemic.
2: Yeah, mandatory seating charts uh, kind of cut into the idea of visibly random grouping. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, not not really a thing. Let's not all mingle around the classroom.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Uh really hard. Even in, in the early parts even sharing materials. You know, if I had a group doing an exploration with cubes, they had to, or cards even God, I had many decks of cards because once the kids had touched them, they couldn't be retouched until they'd been fogged.
2: So. Yeah. hope Hopefully we understand the science behind that a little bit more now, but um, yeah, one of the projects that uh, I work on right now, um, it, it's, um, It's actually online collaborative learning. So imagine it's called virtual math teams and imagine that you're doing a Desmos activity. So everyone, most people have a pretty good idea of what that might look like. But what if all of us were in a virtual room doing the same Desmos activity Mm. together? Um, We have a text chat on one side and then we have a shared Desmos space where one of us can take control at a time. So there's no talking out loud. There's no sitting next to people, but you're doing math with people in a very intentional Mm way. Um, And that we have a few teachers in this project who are like, oh, wait, I can do this when I can't do the other stuff right now because of all the requirements because of the pandemic. So, um, I mean, that that's been a project we've been doing for, gosh, maybe 15 years. We've been involved in in some way. But right now, that's for a few people. That's kind of a lifeline. It's like, oh, my kids can do math together while they sit in, you know, different corners of the room, so.
1: So you can do that while you're two different, like you said, two different kids in one room, but you could also do that with someone in another state, in a different school, in a different country, you know, yep. time zones will start to mess with that a bit, but um, that's a, what, what kind of ages or grade levels is, is that applicable to?
2: The grant that we're working on right now um, is uh, targeted at middle school. But we have done it in the past um, with kids, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. At what grade do you think kids can carry on a conversation in text? Mm. That, then they can do this thing. Um, for some, that's pretty young kids. Um, but, you know, any, and then up through, you know, we have graduate courses that have used the software as well. Um, and so, you know, you can incorporate, right now it incorporates GeoGebra um, or Desmos, Either activities or the calculator itself, and we're working on uh, Web Sketchpad and um, Pirate Coding Language. Uh, we have another project that involves that. So, you know how how many environments can we get in there so that people can be collaborating um, across you know across distances and time zones, yeah, yeah. Um, or just across the room. Who's uh, the Who's the we Annie? The we is. Uh, two of my colleagues from the math forum, when uh, NCTM dissolved the math forum, we had three uh, grants going on at that time. And we've gotten a new grant since then. So myself and Steve Weimer, uh, who was the director of the math forum for uh, many years, and then uh, our colleague, Richard Chen. um, And that grant right now is funded by a group called EF plus math, which is executive functions plus math. What, What would it look like to help students Develop their executive functions in the circumstances of learning mathematics. So,
0: oh, we actually hmm, we talk a lot about that in in one phase of what all learners does. We a few years ago we took on, at the request of an agency, we took on working with children with really complex needs, so deaf blind kids, uh, kids with low cognitive testing and autism, you know, kids who are the 5% that RTI sometimes talks about in terms of their challenges for learning math. Um, So that's really interesting because we, in talking to people as we were getting the project going, we noticed that when you do real math with kids, even kids who can't communicate and use a communication board, it really builds quickly. Like the issue was in many ways, They weren't being asked to do real math in any kind of significant way. They were being trained to do money and time most of the time. And actually, and I posted about that and gotten a lot of pushback from special educators that maybe math is more than time and money. Uh, Anyway, there's lots of articles about the fact that if you have a higher cognitive function, you'll be better at math. But we've begun to spin the other way, just like you are, that doing more math leads to higher cognitive function. And, uh, you know, when you don't do real math with kids with these complex needs, you're actually slowing down their overall development, not just their math development.
2: Yeah. And I think um, what's hard for people to sort of, again, believe um, is that a lot of kids can do some pretty complex math, even when they can't do what we would consider the, we, we mean the culture would consider the baseline of like memorizing your tables and, you know, stuff like that. And and um, I, I know someone who has a, a grandchild who um, uh, was born prematurely and so has some learning difficulties and things. And at one point they were doing something and the kid like went off on this super advanced know explanation or uh, of what they were talking about and and the grandparent is like what wait what did you just talk about and the kid said I can't do the easy things grandma but I can do the hard things right and like so the kid had this idea of like yeah there's a lot of stuff I have a lot of trouble with it's not the hard things right I just like and and first the kid had this awareness um that yeah there's some things I'm just really bad at Um, But it doesn't mean I can't do the other things that we usually put after the things she was bad at, you know. And I think that's we really do do kids a disservice by not giving them opportunities to do that, because, in fact, yeah, some of them, they don't have the the, they will not figure certain things out. But we don't know who those kids are just by the simple labels we put on them.
0: Well, it also spotlights this notion of what learning math is. You know, because kids with complex needs get what I believe, not what I believe, what is the, the lowest level of math instruction in the sense of somebody saying, I'm going to tell you how to do this, and then I want you to do it like I did it, and maybe you'll understand or maybe you won't. Um, but very few real mathematicians, maybe none, are like, yeah, I don't need to understand this, I'm just doing this because somebody told me I'm supposed to do this. Um, yeah, and it really well, highlights that when the kids have complex needs.
1: And well, and if we think about the students who are have the most complex needs in schools, in my personal experience, those kiddos are usually or typically with the adults or the educators who have, usually have the least amount of uh, kind of expertise and training around how to teach math well. I mean, I was a special educator myself, and and twenty something years ago, and said. Yeesh, I'm, I'm responsible for these kids and I, I don't know how to teach beyond telling them the steps of the algorithm and then saying it louder, saying it again, you know, like that was my strategy. So I, I knew I had to get better. And that's when I have started on the journey I've been on kind of to become a better math teacher. Um, but yeah, I also, I think, sorry, go ahead. Well,
2: I was going to say, there, you know, there's, there's doing math and finding answers and then there's participating in mathematical conversations. And I mean, I I was in a third grade classroom where I was going to teach them a game from the everyday math textbook that they were supposed to all be using by district mandate, which which is all fine. Um, And uh, so I invited four kids to come up to the front to help me basically model this game, which meant they're going to be sort of mildly active cones. They're not actually. And, you know, I called on one of the kids and the other kids looked at me and they're like, oh, no, she doesn't do math with us. She goes out. And I'm like. And, and I looked at the teacher and the teacher kind of nodded. And I was like, well, she can do this with us. And they're like, really? <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'm like, she's going to stand up here and hold a card. People like, you don't even know. Just because we've labeled it math, you've already decided she can't do it. And, uh, and so she came up front. She was kind of glowing, but also looked a little freaked out because, like, I never do this. And, you know, and it just it made me sad in that moment because it's like, no, no, trust me. I'm the grown up in charge for one. I'm going to make good choices for you all. But like just this idea that math block has started. And so she doesn't exist. And eventually some other grown up will come and get her. It's like, but wait, you know, Um, and I, and I think that's, it's a super fun part. And sometimes revealing part of what I do is since I am always a guest in the classroom, I don't know anything about the kids. (laughs) Sure. I know which kid has a wheelchair and I know which kid has a grown up that sits next to them the entire time. Other than that, I can't really tell you anything about who has an IEP, what their IEP says, how it might impact what we're going to do today. I don't know anything. And so kids get these mathematical experiences that they don't get because they've already been, decisions have already been made about what will happen. And I'm like, no, yeah, let's just do some stuff and see what you know goes on. Well, so,
0: there, there's a certain, yeah, there's a certain willingness to um, to roll with it. I was just talking about this with the curriculum director yesterday. You know, the model of math is I do what the curriculum says. And then I give the kids an assessment because, you know, you got to give assessments. And then I mark the ones that are right and the ones that are wrong. And the ones that are wrong, if I'm if I'm conscientious, I go over those again. Right. I repeat them. And so the the missing the point of the interaction of being curious about how the kid is thinking about it. And if you, if you start from that place, then it's much easier to have those kids be involved right from the beginning. What's your understanding of it? Cause everybody's understanding is different. So that kid is just one more instance, right? Of somebody who's thinking about it differently. It's, it's very much the difference between the school, the kid has to do what the school is doing, as opposed to the school has to find a way to figure out what the kid is doing, you know.
2: Yeah, and that's hard, but very doable. Um, so doable.
1: Yeah, I, I, I tweeted recently that um, that issues in schools are adult issues, not kid issues, <laughs> and I really I really believe that that um, I can't tell you how many times I'm in classrooms like you were just talking Annie, about that third grade classroom. And afterwards, we'll go and reflect and the teacher will say, that kid never talks. I don't know how you got them to talk. And it's like, well, I expected them to talk and I actually gave them the opportunity to talk. So I just feel so many kids are not given access to mathematics because of what we think they can or can't do. Um, and, and that's really, that's a, such a hard thing, I think, to, to make a shift in the culture of education.
2: Yeah, and I think it's pretty, I think teachers are pretty good at saying which kids can participate in a traditional math class successfully. I, I think all teachers, almost all teachers can probably tell you that when you walk through their door. So that to me means traditional math class isn't the right thing to do because you're already leaving out a bunch of kids before we've even started any lesson or unit or what course you're already eliminating kids because you know they're not going to get it done in that setting all right now, now. okay so as you're saying it's an adult problem right it's not the kid problem it's like we have to do a different thing well what,
0: whether you think they can or whether you think they can't you're probably right right
2: yeah yeah,
0: yeah. um but and, but it does and, point to that fundamental shift right i think Sometimes people think about the work we do as new moves or new techniques, Mm. but there's a really fundamentally different way you have to see your role.
2: Can you say a little about that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, people use the sage on the stage idea and stuff. And um, I think my dad still talks about the fact, my dad's 87, and he still you can tell gets kind of goosebumps when he talks about, he was always afraid someone would call on him in class. Like, and he's a smart guy He went to college, right? Like he's um, perfectly intelligent, probably did fine in school, traditional school, but still this whole idea of it being something slightly different. um, And those moments of like, you're gonna get called on, of course, to give the right answer to the thing we're doing right now, not to share your ideas. you know, how, how do we make it so that kids talk every day because that's what humans do um, and that they get to share their ideas every day because that's what humans are set up to do. And we sort of pretend that doesn't happen for six hours a day. Um, so how do we you know, how do we help teachers understand um, that it can be a different thing? I, I was working with a first grade teacher once who um, she taught in an Uber uber christian school and said that math was right after lunch and that she had this group of boys first grade they came in after lunch and they would pray and she literally meant pray that she would not get frustrated with them that day when they didn't understand and and to her she's like i explain it the way it is in the book i do the examples in the book and if they don't get it i don't know anything else to do and Mm -hmm. i felt for her because yes i'm totally that's a, that's a horrible situation. Your job is for them to be able to do this thing um, and you don't know another way to help them get there. So um, over the course of three days um, of doing, noticing and wondering and, and mainly just like, well, what if your job was to start conversations in the room instead about this thing that yes, we would like them to do, ultimately that's our goal. But what if your job is to like throw some things out there and see what happens? And at the end of three days, she's like, "I think you just saved my my career because like Ooh. I can do that. I, I can I can get them to talk about mathy things." Now I don't I don't know what happened. I didn't get any follow up with with her. That's the downside of some of the things that I do. Um, but you know, just for her, this idea that it could be a different thing that there was nothing in her universe that suggested that—until myself and my colleague Val wandered in and we're like. What if you did this? What if math looked like this some of the time?
0: Oh. What do you think are the biggest barriers to getting teachers to have kids talk? Like, why don't they do that more often?
2: Uh, one, the the cultural shift of what does math look like? Because you know, like I said, when I was in high school and someone asked me, oh, what are you going to be when you grow up? Math teacher. It's like, I already know exactly what that looks like. I could tell you, I could run a class for you right now because it was, we're doing, you know, Lesson 2.3, and these are the examples I'm going to do on the board, and these are the things I'm going to say out loud, and then these are the problems you're going to do for homework. Like, that's, how hard could that be? And And so many people grew up in that setting, that just this idea that math could look a different way. Whereas I think if you look at how is English, language arts stuff taught, it's a lot different. It has commonalities, but there are sort of different modes. Are we writing? Are we reading? Are we discussing? Are we opining? Like we bring, yeah. we bring more of ourselves and it's a much more diverse thing. Whereas I think math looks, you know, a particular way and nobody's, well, right, not nobody, but most people are like totally okay with that, even though all the evidence clearly says it doesn't work and that we have lots of people who hate math, and people are apparently kind of okay with that. But again, they don't, they don't know it could be a different thing. So I think it's really hard to get over that, particularly for uh, elementary teachers for whom math was not their favorite thing. It's super easy to revert back and go like, I can say all this text that's in the teacher's book, I can say all that. Like, I have a script here, and I can follow it, and I'll just keep my fingers crossed and hope. And they don't know that it could be a different thing a different thing, because they don't have a model for that. They don't know what that could look like, or they're not going to tell you that teaching math is their favorite thing, or is fun, or that all their kids are super awesome at it. But they also don't know what else it could be. So and that that's a hard the the cultural bit. I mean, because even the parents are like, why don't you send home worksheets? Like, because that's horrible um but that's that's just our cultural expectation that math looks a certain way and we we haven't lots of people have made tremendous strides around that but it's a long road to hoe. right we got a long way to go before more people are like why are they sitting in rows that's so stupid right right right
1: I, I always talk about kind of the, the, the science and the art of teaching math. And to me, what you were just talking about with facilitating discourse and getting kids talking, get, getting kids talking to each other, like to me, that's the art side of math. And that, that takes time and effort and practice. And uh, yeah, and like you said, having a model. So I'm often kind of modeling in classrooms. I know you presented recently, Annie, about the power of students' ideas. Anything from that that you haven't kind of mentioned already or any essence from that you could share with us here?
2: I think the the important, well, the, the main important part there is that kids have ideas. And I think this is related to the last question of like, why don't people do it? Once kids start doing brain dumps of all those ideas, that's kind of scary. You have to listen and decide what <laughs> to do with that. That's that's a lot of, a lot of work in a way. Um, but the fact that kids, I mean, all right, we teach humans, uh, n- not in Florida maybe, but apparently <laughs> everywhere else we teach humans. Um, and that, that those humans come with ideas and they want to be valued for their ideas um, and their thinking. And so um, part of uh, what I talk about when I'm focused on the power of kids' ideas is what are routines you can do that are all about ideas? They are not at all about answers. So for instance, Number talks. When you do a number talk, it is not the thing we're focused on is not the fact that the answer is 63. We're focused on what were all the different ways that we got there. And if you're doing a dot talk, same thing. We're focused on how did you see that? How did you know it was that many? Like everyone agrees it was that many. That's not what we're talking about at all. You might as well just write that answer on the board because it's for for all the focus we spend on it. And then uh, or something like which one doesn't belong. Right. That's sure. There there are answers there technically. But the thing you're listening to is what is the reason? Because we could all say that the third thing doesn't belong for all very different reasons. And In fact, I was seeing a second grade class uh, in in Zoom. um, But math is their favorite time of the day, by the way, because their school has a focus on sense making. And they're super excited. Math is our favorite time because we get to share our ideas and hear everyone else's ideas. Like that's mm-hmm. their their big moment of the day is math class in Zoom, mind you, all right? So how you think how much worse could it be? These kids love it. Um, but they were doing which one doesn't belong. And a lot of kids were talking about, well, this, this one doesn't belong. They were giving reasons that were all kind of similar. And the teacher's like, okay, does anyone want to say something else doesn't belong? And this one kid raised her hand and was like, well, I want to say the other thing doesn't belong still, but I have a different idea that nobody has said. Right? So like she was so focused on, I have this idea that we haven't heard that even though you, the teacher, have asked me to do something else, I'm gonna dive in here. So what are things we can do that focus on ideas and not answers? So we're shifting away. Answers are important. We would like people to be able to answer things, um, but getting the answers is a lot easier if you think you have ideas about things. So what are routines that are focused on ideas? What are ways we can ask questions that are focused on ideas? And then there's the whole conversation of what do you do when you have all those ideas? That's challenging um, and that's, that's a hard thing, but you first have to believe that could happen. I mean, can you imagine a worse thing? There are too many ideas in my class. I mm. don't know what to do. Yeah. We're talking about ratios and I have all these things and I have to process them and it's super, that's the challenge. And, and that's sort of one reason I would like teachers to have um, textbooks where they could start on page one and just go straight through because it's set up to elicit student thinking get them to share their ideas it's got routines built into it so that the teacher can focus not on picking a great thing to do and but they can focus on listening to kids and deciding what to do with all those ideas because that's the part that that a human has to do in the moment right We, we have teachers who are writing some great lessons we have lots of wonderful resources out there how do we put them together ahead of time so that the teacher can do the hard part of being in that room with 24, 36 kids and listen and decide what to do. That, that's as opposed to, what am I supposed to do in the lesson? Like, no, what do I do with this pile of stuff that my kids have gloriously thrown out into the air? And now it's sort of settling. Um, and so, yeah, how do, how do we focus on ideas? How do we make it so that kids come with ideas? And they know that and that we we let them know that we want to hear them because that's, you know, people talk about, oh, we have to make math about the real world and shopping and basketball and whatever. And it's like, you know, the realist thing to kids is what's in their head. So what if you ask them about some totally random visual pattern that has nothing to do with anything, um, but you want to know what they think? Oh. They're going to be engaged, right? They, like they're going to be like, oh, and and they re- you really want to hear what they think, you know? That that's that's super exciting to kids. They're they're happy to engage in the most abstract of conversations and interactions when they're really being valued for what they bring.
0: Um, when it's genuine, yeah, yeah, yeah. We I, 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 I gotta put in a a plug yeah. here because it's coming up in the future, but we're just starting a project kind of to create that textbook that you're talking about. Uh, in Japan, you know, the national curriculum is like a problem each day. That's, there's a famous story about a district in Texas that said, well, Japan is scoring so highly, they, they have this miraculous curriculum, and that must be the thing, right? So you, you get the Japanese national curriculum for a grade, and, you know, it's tiny. It's, uh, it's whatever it is, 160 problems. And so the, the superintendent famously reported in a conversation with others that he couldn't understand how the Japanese were doing it. His students have got through the whole curriculum by October. And like, right? So we're looking at creating tasks, main lesson tasks, specifically so the teacher can focus on other things beyond uh, do you have the right answer? Let These are rich problems. And we're also borrowing a little from Peter uh power of student thinking. Power of, what is that Building called? Thinking Building thinking classrooms. Building thinking classrooms, right. Yeah. Um, and we're going off script from CCSS a bit. We're looking for problems that are interesting, first and foremost, from some areas of mathematics that might not have been Uh, we're sort of left out of the recipe when CCSS was coming up because the idea is to, um, to bolster student thinking, to give them chances to talk about stuff. Uh, I am interested in knowing whether your the title of your book is any relation to Deborah
2: Myers, the power of their ideas. No, actually, that's interesting. And and I don't have a book, mind you. I, I just, it's a, it's one of the, sort of sessions I've been leading recently so don't
1: don't have a book yet or yeah we should tell you
2: like how what how does one get projects done right like so (laughs) yeah I'm not a long-term project person for the most part so I, I I think I need to make some shifts to to make some of those things happen but uh John I wanted to to on your thing the idea of the curriculum and doing problems and I know that um, a math educator in Delaware that I worked with um, a while back, but for a while, John Mannon, you know, he just said this one thing out loud one time. Are we learning math to solve problems or are we solving problems to learn math, right? So we do the first one. We think, oh, kids, you know, the problems are all at the end so that they can learn all the little things so they can do the thing. And you hear teachers talk about, well, before I give them these things, I will have to pre-teach and we're right. like no no no, time out the whole point we're doing these things is right. so that they have exposure to those things as opposed to giving them things to do and having them grapple with them and then it turns out they learn math uh math as we call it so i think that's you know that's a big shift and what what does that look like and and part of it is that belief part of like but they don't know how to do this and are like yeah so i mean it you can get people to notice and wonder about things where they don't know the math content behind it. They just don't know it yet. They haven't learned, they haven't been exposed to that. It's, you know, years ahead of where they are. They still have ideas, right? Like, and, and we, don't, um, we don't take that into consideration that people can have conversations about stuff they can't actually answer, but that they certainly have ideas about. Um, and so how do, we, how do we make that a reality? You know, doing doing the pro- the hardest problems at the end of the chapter as a launch.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, to- you know. Totally, yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or you know, the the uh, conjectural kinds of problems. One of the things uh, the people who are beginning to work on this we're thinking about is uh, Solomon Gollum's polyominoes. And like doing.
2: I love that. But when I found that book in the library, I had so much fun. Oh my god! It's fun work, of course, but still. Yeah,
0: you know. it's fabulous. But there are lots of things you can explore over the course of eight years, where you're coming back to polyominoes. You know, and one of the things that came up was so there's there's five different tetrominos. How do you know there's only five? Yeah. Like. Getting the kid, that's real math, right? That's what mathematicians actually do. And unfortunately, I, I'm all in support of CCSS. I'm not a hater. But it has, like, everybody takes it as a recipe for, okay, so if we have a problem about this, then we've got to make sure that we shoehorn this really interesting, rich exploration into an objective that will meet one of those CCSS forgetting that it's the math thinking that is underneath all of that.
2: Yeah, well, and and you know, as I always say, the first mathematical practice makes sense of problems and persevere in solving them, like that's first in the whole thing for a reason. Like okay. if you're not doing that part, kind of the rest of it is um, sort of a waste of time, you know, because if, if we don't, if kids don't think, and this is related to, you know, I think all kids have ideas about all problems, Um, and that our job is to convince kids that that's true or to give them opportunities to sort of experience the fact that that's true. Um, But also you have to be monitoring for sense-making. Do my kids think that they're doing magical things that they're doing just because I told them to, (laughs) or are they doing something because it makes sense? Um, And that's, it's hard. It's not, it's not simple and it's not how we approach math again, culturally. Here, But, you know, what what would it look like for the teacher to go like, well, wait, why did you do that? Well,
0: OK, so said, you know. so we're, we're sort of getting toward the end, but it's a great segue. The magical thinking part is a great segue because it kind of rained manure on me a while back because I made a statement at a conference. We got to stop teaching the algorithms. And then somebody posted that on Twitter. And then it. No, became- I did. Oh, you did. Yeah, thanks <laughs> for that. I
1: posted that you said this. Yeah.
0: yeah. And then it became a thing. So since we knew we were going to have you on here, I wondered if you had a comment about the the standard algorithm.
2: Um, I don't think anyone needs to know the standard algorithm for most things. I think um, I think it's great if they do know it, if they know why it works, right? Mm. So I was thinking about why do we use this standard multiplication algorithm? Um, well, is if you actually know how it works, it is one reasonably efficient, but very reliable way to get an answer, right? If you know how it works and you can pull it off every time, you will get the right answer. Um, and, uh, I I was thinking, um, my grandmother who was a math teacher, uh, was her first job was as a calculator. So, which basically was a person, usually a woman, um, probably an unmarried woman, but who was good at math, who would basically just crank out like actuarial tables, right? And, you know, okay, they had algorithms for doing it. They weren't reasoning stuff out. They had steps they did because they're doing this so many times. So it's nice to have an efficient way to find an answer. And I was trying to think like, I haven't looked this up. Like, why is it that the standard algorithms we so call, which are not necessarily the standard algorithms everywhere, but everywhere has an algorithm that they sort of promote as this is efficient and it works every time and it would be handy if people knew it um and and so i think that's part of it. Is we look at well why did that why did particular things come the standard algorithm because for me i do like partial sums i am never going to do standard edition algorithm again if i don't have to i'm going to do partial sums actually i'm going to get my calculator out my phone and just add them because i'm not great at arithmetic i tend to make lots of mistakes um and uh fortunately i'm pretty good at checking for reasonableness but um but yeah why why do we do that and are we having conversations about sense making like okay so partial products that i think the sense making is pretty close to the surface lattice method that can be pretty obscure like i finally figured out why it works but i don't think most kids who do it um it. but so how do we put them in touch with ways to do these things where they are understanding why it produces the correct result um and i mean the standard algorithms are also hard because they're going to learn them at home or from an older sibling so we we can't pretend they don't exist we can't just sort of wipe wipe them from the face of the earth um but we can um have conversations about them like why why does that work i think you know Partial sums or something makes a lot more sense because you're talking about, you're focused on the magnitude of the answer, and it's much more apparent, I think, where the parts come from. Uh, You know, you don't have as much trouble with what? Zero? Why do we put a zero? What's, you know, what's up with that? Why do we move things over? Why do we add this here? It's like, add the hundreds, add the tens, add the ones. Like, those are things. They aren't just numbers. They're they're sort of things. So, yeah, I don't, I, I just... I don't want to do arithmetic. I want to do thinking things. I want to set up whole problems and then be like, oh, and then tap, 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 tap. The answer is this. Um, well, that, you know, the you thing know is, when to add? your magic, when to multiply, you know?
0: Yeah, your magical thinking idea is a, re- I mean, I, I might use that. Um, go right yeah. I mean, because the algorithm is a magical idea for most kids in most applications, especially things like the division algorithm, all of the fraction algorithms I plug it in and I get an answer it's a black box experience and there are certain things that at a certain level and maybe this isn't even true but you know I'm thinking about reasoning in n-dimensional space like it's really hard to get your head around that and so plugging some of the statistical functions that we run through computers you know the, the guts of those calculations can be pretty complicated to wrap your head around, but arithmetic, maybe not so much. So, and, and when teachers are focused on teaching that algorithm, they do not go to the sense making. They do not. No, I, so I
2: was, to... There was a teacher who was, uh, I think she was a math pullout teacher at an elementary school I was working with. And she was teaching kids to convert mixed numbers to impro- improper, improper oh. fractions or fractions greater than one. And, uh, she taught them the algorithm. They practiced, they went back and forth. You know, this is math pullout class. And then the kids left. And I said, you know, I wonder if um, it would be interesting to them to know why that works, like why you multiply the denominator by the whole number and add the top. And she's like, well, I'd be happy to teach that to them if you would explain it to me. <laughs> I was like, sure. So we sat down and we did it all. And She's like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's like, Yeah. And for one, that's a super simple set of steps, right? Multiply, add, write down. But she didn't know. And and it hadn't occurred to her that it would matter. Like I'm sure she could have figured out she was smart. If it, if she had thought about like, wait, why does this thing work? But to her, it's all like, I need the kids to be able to do this thing. Um, And look, we don't even have to have a conversation about, you know, mixed numbers and stuff, but um, how, how, how do we put kids in situations where they develop methods to do these things that we turn into procedures, right? We have this concept of, oh, we have a whole number and then some bits and pieces um, and we can do things with them. Sometimes it's easier to do those things if they're written a different way. How do you give kids opportunities to go through methods We have concepts and methods and then procedures. And we tend to maybe wave our hand at the concept and jump to the procedures. We don't give kids chances to develop the, methods um i remember in uh i think whatever whatever class you first learn like slope and stuff maybe it was geometry it's probably geometry and i was like well isn't slope just negative a over b like i went to the teacher's desk and i said isn't the slope just negative a over b and he was like yes but don't tell anyone (laughs) because he wanted them to figure it out he wasn't just going to tell them now that i knew i could just do it i didn't have to solve you know the standard form for the points by doing the whole thing. I could just write negative A or B. Um, he made room for that in that case. And uh, so how do we make room for kids to do stuff? And then they go, wait, can't you just multiply that by that and add that, you know, or, or whatever you're doing? Yeah, go go on, go ahead, you're done. I don't need to talk to you anymore.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we tried, uh, we got an, un, we wrote an unfunded NSF grant when I was in Hartford to um, get kids because what's in a calculator it's algorithms. So, but we said, well, we, we had this whole program to have kids develop their own algorithms. And then uh, we were going to have an app development at the same time. So essentially they load their own algorithms into this app and then they can use the app as a calculator. So anytime they did the calculations, they were doing it on their own self-created algorithms, which I thought mm-hmm. was a, it was part of a computational thinking Uh, competition didn't get funded but I thought it was a great idea yeah Yeah. well
2: in a way like okay can we do that with spreadsheets if we have to right because I mean that's a lot of what you tell a spreadsheet to do is like I have to do this thing over and over again and I don't want to do it so can I teach you to do it and then I don't have to do it anymore that's I mean, that's kind of why computers exist, right? It's because yeah. people are like, why are we doing this? And
1: and that's really the big, the, I think the big idea here when we start thinking about uh, procedures and algorithms is what is what are companies in the world looking for in terms of the characteristics of employees in the future? And they're not necessarily looking for, for employees that can just do minor calculations, right? Like we have computers and apps, PhotoMath has been out since 2004. I mean, it's you know, we're going on more than a decade, it's been available. So what, what companies really want, and I mean, 1970 calculation skills was the number two thing companies were looking for. Like you said, your grandmother worked, or did that work. Um, But now they're looking for people who who have kind of like solve complex problems and, you know, be creative and, and, and intuitive. And so those are the kind of things that we have to develop with our students from a really young age. We have to get them talking to each other, get them sharing their ideas like you were talking about. You know, it's so important to do.
2: And, and doing that, I'll make a bold claim, if we do those things, they're actually going to learn more math and they're actually going to think math doesn't suck. So, you know, I, I know a lot of people who are like, they're kind of scared at the At the party to say they're a math teacher because people dump on them (laughs) um and and i've sort of rested on i say oh what do you do well i um help math teachers teach math so that people don't think math sucks so i'm acknowledging right out people think math sucks and i'm trying to change that you know so they still dump on me but they dump on me with a different attitude like oh yeah that would be awesome because i didn't like math at all but oh you can do that it's like yeah what 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 would it look like to have a, a setting where people think, you know, not everyone thinks math is their favorite thing, but not everyone thinks whatever civil war history is their favorite thing, but can we get them to know enough about it so they can decide whether it's worth spending more time with or not, you know? So how do we get kids to be like, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll do math. Sure. I'd rather do science, but I'll, I'll do math. Um, you know, and those second graders that I, that I worked with in zoom uh, two winters ago, the, the fact that math class for them is joyous in Zoom because of the fact they, they get to basically bring themselves to math. They get to share their ideas. They get to listen. I mean, obviously, there are tons of things going on in that classroom where kids would say, like, well, TJ, you said this. And I was thinking about when John said blah, blah, blah. These are seven-year-olds who are listening to everyone mm-hmm. And bringing it all in, and they weren't all great at it, but everyone was doing some part of it because they were they were focused on the learning community and what it meant to listen to people and to build on people's ideas, and that was beautiful. And I'm it happens all day, I'm sure, in that room. I was only there for math class, but um, you know the, that idea of like learning is a fun thing. How how do we get kids to think learning is a fun thing, and then math is part of that? Um, you know, school is not the best place for everyone that's a generic (laughs) statement um but how do we make it a better place for more people it's not it's not going to fix everything we can't fix the whole thing but um certainly making math a place where kids are like hang on i got an idea i don't have any idea what the answer is but let me tell you about my ideas because they know someone will listen that that'd be an awesome thing and then it turns out they would be able to find the answer eventually but
1: we're, yeah. we're all Vermonters here and we all have a little bit of Ben Juries in our blood. Uh, you know, if it's not fun, why do it? I love that saying. So yeah. perfect, yeah. perfect way to wrap this up. Any yeah. before we kind of wrap up officially, any, any cool projects or things you're working on, any things on the horizon that you can uh, give us a sneak peek of?
2: Well, I think a uh, fun thing that um, when I was at the Indianapolis NCTM conference uh, and I was talking to Shelby Strong. Um, I don't remember which one of us said, you know, things like notice and wonder, uh, number talks, uh, these routines, people see them and then some people go back and do them. And then for some people that transforms their classrooms and other people are like, that seems really nice, but kind of freaks me out a little to do that like what do you do when they start talking or all this stuff so we thought well what if there are opportunities there are not enough opportunities in conference settings certainly for people to practice routines like leading routines so we said well let's just do that this summer like on the internet somehow so we're actually going to do that uh, we've, um, Annie Forrest is helping us cause we tweeted out like, Hey, who wants to do this? So we're going to, we're starting, we're starting a thing. We gave it a name. So it sounds official. The math routine collaborative. And, um, and we're going to meet, um, probably Thursday nights, um, starting in June. And we're going to rotate different routines. We're going to have a couple people lead the routine, examples of the routine, and then go into breakout rooms and let other people practice leading the routine, um, and do lots of debriefing and conversation and um, uh, I hope that was an, vague enough to know that we don't have exactly everything we're doing but uh, we're sort of rotate between notice and wonder and various versions of that including like numberless word problems and and things and then um, number talks which doesn't belong and then something else um, you know rotating us so that that's the fun thing I guess that i'm doing that people that's, could actually get involved in that's uh, awesome. look for uh shelby and i look chat look at twitter um and we'll have um ways to register for that and join us if you want
1: awesome and if you, if you so, all yeah. if you all share it with us we can we'll we'll get it out in our networks too yeah, because we're, absolutely. we're all about routines absolutely
2: yeah no we awesome. think that would be a fun thing and i i had proposed a session once at a uh, workshop at nctm to do that with like noticing and wondering and, and uh, my session did get rejected for, for those of you who got rejected. Yeah. Everybody gets rejected sometimes. Yes, yes. Um, and, um, and so on the one hand, I was happy because I didn't have to like figure out how to do this workshop, in a weird conference setting thing. And on the other hand, I was like, yeah, but that's what we need. So, um, so looking forward to uh, seeing how that works out and, and what opportunities that, that brings for people and that brings a few more people who will just try it and go like, sure. What's the worst that could happen? No. Will, will you be at um,
1: LA in, in the fall? For- I will if be at time LA. Time. I'll be
2: at NCSM and NCTM. Uh, um, I'm actually doing a, a session at NCTM with Claire Verdi, who's a high school teacher in California who notice and wonder was the, um, the catalyst for her to move from a traditional teacher to a very student centered teacher. Like yeah. she came to a, a session. I did, she thought, eh, okay, I can try notice and wonder and see what happens. Um, and then she says she watched my notice and wonder ignite video. She said 5,000 times, but I think she might've been lying. Um, but it was like when she started doing it and the kids thought it, she's like, Oh my gosh, they have so many ideas. What do I do? And that, that realization made her shift from like some people would say oh this is chaos it's too much i can't do it i'm going back to the other thing she was like oh no i have to do something different because of all of the things they are bringing um so we're doing it so then i uh, dm'd her on twitter and said hey do you want to do a proposal about this thing that you tweeted about and she's like okay so so we did get that accepted so that'll be um that'll be fun hopefully and then uh and, uh, and i'll be at NCSM, So. Yeah, I have family out there also. So my mom is from there and ended up moving to Vermont and her whole family thought she was insane. Um, so and they would not have enjoyed winter at all. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but that's so,
1: okay. so I'm going to say this on air so that that we're held to it, Annie, but we're going to owe you a beer because uh, we'll be there. All learners will be there with a whole cohort of people.
2: Oh, totally so, fine. Oh, yeah. I'll also be in Killington in October with you all. So, oh, okay. oh, nice. Nice. Uh, yeah, nice. yeah. So that so that too. That's
1: the uh, at me conference, right? The New England regional. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, we hope you've all enjoyed our conversation today with Annie Fetter, and we hope you've enjoyed all our episodes this season. Remember, you can find a recording of our podcasts at alllearnersnetwork.com or on Spotify or Anchor, search ALN Math Talk, along with free weekly online lessons, high leverage concepts, high leverage assessments, high leverage t-shirts, belt buckles, and coffee mugs. ALN Math Talk is produced by the All Learners Network, all rights reserved. Executive producers Sandy, Miss Elementary Maths, Stan Hope, and John, I was just thinking Tapper. TJ, the ultimate designer, Jemison, <laughs> is the co-host. Spiritual and mathematical guidance has been provided by Robert, fly in the water, Microbrew, stats loving Laird, who reminds us that we'd probably be more successful if we just drew a freaking picture. Our theme music was written and performed by Sarah Blair.
1: Hope you all join us next school year for another season of ALN Math Talk. Hope you have a great summer, and uh, I hope Annie will join us again next year for continued conversation.
0: Yeah, thanks everybody. (laughs) (laughs) See you next year.